those who don't know, we are um, currently going through a series um, doctrinally about what does it mean to be the church, how um, the church is supposed to function, what are, we, what are we to believe, what are we to do, how are we to act, how are we even to think. And we're in the penultimate one, so um, we will round this, see, this series up next week. Um, just before our Easter series um, kicks in. And today we're going to be looking at the future of the church. The future. And why the church should be thinking about the future. I kind of want to begin with an illustration. Now, whether this illustration drops or not... um, Who knows, but I was stuck in traffic, standstill traffic on the A13, and um, thinking about, this was a few weeks ago, thinking about how would I begin this? How would I illustrate this point? And um, at that particular moment, as I was thinking about this, um, Jennifer Rush's song, The Power of Love, came on the radio. I'm a smooth radio listener, and so I'm getting all those smooth tunes. And I really love this tune. I've, I've heard many versions of it, but I love it from beginning to end. I didn't, you know, I was thinking, do I say the lyrics? You know, as soon as I hear the whispers in the morning, you know, of lovers sleeping tight, the, the, the quietness of that song, at that, at that point, I'm already excited because I know it's leading into that big ending of, you know, the power of love. And for this reason, it's about the quiet points, you know. It's appreciating the quiet points of where you are. In other words, because you know it's going to build to something quite exciting, when you hear those first words, as quiet as they are, as it doesn't necessarily project the full strength of what that song or what that is going to be, you appreciate it because you suddenly realize without that quiet beginning, you wouldn't be able to appreciate that big crescendo. When you really kind of let loose in the shower, as it were. Or let loose in the car, as it would be. It's the quiet times that we might appreciate that we are in when we think of the church and where it is right now. And we might feel tempted to say, well, actually, I don't see a crescendo coming. And appreciating church history, we need to understand that the quiet moments are something that the church is not unfamiliar with. There have always been quiet moments. There have always been those subtle parts of the church where it seems that the church seems to fade. And as well as we look, especially within the West, and even more importantly, within the context of England, that the church has most certainly receded into the background. We cannot always be at the emotional highs. We cannot always be in the most exciting, most dynamic aspects of the church. And I wonder, even as we um, we kind of get more excited as we think about the end times and all other things, and this is kind of on the side, that sometimes we want to live in those exciting times because we, in a sense, want to feel our relevance. But sometimes it's just quiet. And God has made it that way. We need to appreciate it because, in a sense, God is indeed at work, even in these quiet times, building towards our own future. James 1, 2-4 says this, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, 
And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect, complete, lacking in nothing. In other words, the quiet moments give us that ability to build towards the more dynamic times. In other words, the foundation of that which is to come, of what God is going to do in the future, really is being laid now. If we really think about it, if we all gave up and all decided to go out, where would those future Christians be? You know, today we're looking at this dedication, isn't it? We're seeing the foundations of a new generation being raised up, even with the context of Ecclesia. And so we are, in a sense, because we are still here, we're able to have that dedication and, as it were, usher in a new generation. We have multiple texts today that we kind of look at. So when, where we are in the book, um, The Message of the Church, is that there are multiple texts leading all the way from Acts 11 all the way through to 20. And so I want to kind of do a highlight of what I believe is going to be hopefully fruitful for us. So let me start in Acts 11, 19 to 27, and then we will pray and um, kind of jump in. So reading in the ESV. Now, those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except Jews. But there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who on coming to Antioch spoke to the Hellenists, also preaching the Lord Jesus and the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number who believed turned to the Lord. The report of this came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. When he came and saw the grace of God, he was glad and exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. For he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. And a great many people were added to the Lord. So Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul, and when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch. For a whole year, they met with the church and taught a great many people, and in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. This is the word of God. Let's pray. Lord, as we um, look back into history, um, the history of your church, Lord, at its foundation, Lord God, we are doing so there, Lord Father, as good historians tell us we do, because in a sense, if we are to um, be good, um, represent ourselves well in the present and into the future, Lord God, it is to know the history of where we have come from. And Lord, as we look at your word, Lord God, look at what you were doing within the lives of your believers, dear God, some 2,000 years ago, we are hoping, dear Lord God, that you will give us a perspective on where we are today. And such, dear Lord God, that we will have direction. We will be able to appreciate even what you are doing, even in the midst of our own crisis, dear Lord Father, even in the midst of seeming decline, dear Lord Father, that, Father, we will see your hand truly at work. Let your Holy Spirit indeed um, stir us up, dear Lord God, to um, firm up who we are as the church so that, Lord God, we, Lord Father, will be faithful in our generation. And even if this was the time you choose to come back there, Lord God, that even through us, the Lord, you will be able to faithfully say that I have found faith in the earth through who we are and what we are doing. So, Lord, we are thankful today. Give us your wisdom. Give us an ear to hear what the Spirit is saying to his church. Amen. Amen. So, Disciples didn't intend to be in Antioch, but the Lord certainly intended them to be there. Their success in transferring the Jerusalem church to Antioch then leads them to think about intentionally replicating the same process again willingly. You know, to be pushed out of our comfort zone is often a way that God gets us out of the ruts that we are in. 
In other words, we can get into places where we're just comfortable. Nothing's really happening. Nothing's, we're not really rocking the boat. But ultimately, God, things happen. And we say that we see God's involvement in those circumstances because in a sense of to what they lead to. The Lord in his grace has to get ourselves out of our own way. So often we think it's other people that are in our way. But more often than not, it's ourselves. And our getting us out of our comfort zone is one of those things in which the Lord does and says, actually, I'm trying to move you. Whereas we are looking around and saying, Lord, why don't you move that person out of the way so I can move forward? But through Christ, this is God moves ourselves. So when we look at our text today, what are, we, what are we learning? Well, look, the future tends to be thought of. And when I think about us now, the future, we tend to think of it in abstract terms. So what do I mean by that? This means that as, as if something that we look at it as something that's disconnected from ourselves. The future is always out there somewhere. And I'm not really connected to it. It's many days from now, it's many weeks from now, it's many years from now, but it's certainly not now. And therein lies the problem. The problem with this type of thinking is it does not seem to appreciate that the foundation for the future is being laid now. We are creating the future, moment by moment. What should shatter this way of thinking is when your generation, when your peers, are the ones that are in power. I mean, I'm a man of, in my 50s. I am that generation where most of the people are running the most successful companies. They're in government. My generation. And so, to some extent, there was a time where I looked at when I, would, when I get older, I'll do this. And, you know, when we were teenagers and we were going to conquer the world and fix all the world's problems, that's us now. We are that generation. And <laughs> we've done no better. So what are we to do? Well, obviously we need to start changing our way of thinking. If our idea of the future is always 20 years from now, then there is a sense in which it will always be 20 years away. This year, Ecclesia will be 20 years old. From its inception as a church plant in East Dulwich, we are now the future of that church plant. We are 20 years into the Ecclesia project. We are in the future. As we come to think about the Church of Antioch, it did not stumble into existence, but it did not just stumble into existence, but initially it may have looked like something that was haphazardly coming together. As we're fleeing persecution, and to some extent, it was just a project to survive. There is no life for us in Jerusalem. We cannot live there and be safe because of obviously what happened, as the text tells us, to Stephen. As persecuted Jews ran away from the Jerusalem in order to make new lives for themselves, the most most likely didn't see themselves as a church or the mission to plant itself elsewhere. In other words, again, it, it didn't look like we're doing this to, to, to kind of make the church better. We're just trying to survive. But what seems to be happening unintentionally, is in fact working towards God's greater, 
glorious plan. As those believers moved away from, from the only home they may have known in order to make a home in a strange new city, they also moved away from the jurisdiction of the Sanhedrin and its power to lobby the Roman government against them. So as they moved out of Judea, the problem of an unfavorable government was becoming less of a problem. Now, it wouldn't say that in these new areas it won't become a problem, but that particular time, there was nobody there to contend with them. They didn't know what this way was. The result, was that they became, the result of this was that they became free to live a, a life of peace. And something that even Paul tells us that we should pray for. That we, so that the gospel may grow, that we may have peace. And also continue to live out, out their faith and share it with others who are willing to listen. So as they mixed with other Hellenistic Jews who had a more open-minded perspective. Because obviously it, the, the, Luke intentionally tells us that those Jews had no intention of talking to anybody outside of the Jewish race. But as they met Hellenistic Jews, now these guys were Jews that were living in, in, in Greek-speaking places. All of a sudden now, these guys have a, they, they've got a broader palette. They want to talk to everybody else. And so as they became Christians, they're like, I'm going to share this with anyone I can. Not just to Jews. So up, this, up to this point in the text, there's been a real issue with even Peter, as a leader of the church, talking to anybody outside of the Jewish ethnicity. But now, these Hellenistic Jews are doing it and creating a church. And as the years went by, they started out, what started out as a humble means to survive becomes a multicultural church that has grown into such considerable size. The Jerusalem church now had to take notice of it as a rival to its own significance. So this is where Barnabas now comes into the picture, where they say, look, we're hearing that something's happening in Antioch. Can you go up there and have a look? See what's going on? Because... I thought everything was happening in Jerusalem. Now Antioch is making waves in the Roman world. Let's see what's going on there. So even the Jerusalem church now has to take notice of them. The church of Antioch is unique because it becomes the first church that now seeks to replicate itself in other cities and appoints a team of its best in order to do it. So what in the past had happened as a re, a repercussions of dire circumstances now becomes a blueprint for missions and to evangelize the world. What do we learn from this? Well, we can choose to be victims of a crisis or we can take lemons and turn them into lemonade. There's no place in the Christian church to become victims. Even Christ on the cross chooses not to be a victim. This is going to work to the glory of God. And we are to reject victimhood. Because Christ is indeed at work. Let's look at our second text today. It's in 13, Acts 13, 1 to 4. <clears throat> now there were in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger Lucius of Cyrene, Manain, a lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch and Saul while they were worshipping the Lord and fasting the Holy Spirit said set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them then, after fasting and praying, they laid hands on them and sent them off. So this is the church now moving 
into that blueprint of missions. They kind of look at what they stumbled upon in Antioch, and like I said, that as looking back at chapter 11, they were first called Christians there. They've now established this multicultural church, which we now see being there, that all these people of different classes as well as being of different nations have all established this church. And now the thing is that they start to say, let's do this elsewhere. And to some extent, what looked like it was just a mistake, a plan for survival, now looks like this is what we need to do. As I said, there's no place for victimhood. This is God at work moving us into these new places. So as we look at now into the rest of the book of Acts, there's three particular things I want us to kind of consider. And again, this comes from the book, and this is why I think is helpful um, as um, Chris Green lays it out. But they're the things I think, I, I think are important. When we think of ourselves and where we are, there's three things that we need to kind of think about as we see ourselves and look at ourselves and say, well, how do we translate this into our own times? Well, one, I think we need to engage in whatever opportunities you are given, and we will look at that a little bit more closely in a minute. Second, we need to tell his story. His story. That is God's story. And then three, we need to exegete the cultural context of our audience and recontextualize the gospel into it. In other words, we need to realize that the Bible as an ancient book speaks to the human condition, but more often than not, we have to do the work of recontextualizing it so that it makes sense to the current generation. So it doesn't look like, well, that was for then and that's not for now. But when we look at the, the plight of what it means to be human, the Bible speaks to the human condition. And we will see that as well as we look at the various texts. So let me begin. Engaging with whatever culture opportunities we are given. So I want to start here in um, Acts 16, 13 to 15. And on the Sabbath day, he went outside the gate to the riverside where he was, where, where we supposed there was a place of prayer. And we sat down and spoke to the women who had come together. One who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Phytira, a seller of purple goods, who was a worshipper of God. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. And after she was baptized in her household as well, she urged us, saying, If you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. And she prevailed upon us. That's our first reading. Moving a little bit further down into the same one, 25, verse 25 of the same chapter, and it says this, about midnight, now Paul has now been arrested for having um, caused a kerfuffle with um, releasing a girl from her demonic possession, which caused them to be put in prison. And it says, about midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. And suddenly there was a great earthquake, so that the foundations of the prisons were shaken, and immediately all the doors were opened, and everyone's bonds were unfastened. When the jailer woke and saw that the prison doors were open, he, threw, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself, supposing that the prisoners had escaped. But Paul cried with a loud voice, Do not harm yourself, for we are all here. And the jailer called for lights and rushed in and trembled with fear and fell down before Paul and Silas. Then he brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. It's important to realize that ministry isn't just about what happens when you're in the ideal circumstances. And this is what that first point is, and this is what it means as I kind of encourage us about what we might look at as an opportunity for the gospel in our own lives. 
like Paul, you can be going about your normal daily, weekly routine and find that God presents you with an opportunity to speak to someone who he has opened their heart to hear you. Well, we're going down to pray anyway. And then there's other people there that's praying. And as you're praying, then, oh, right, okay, you're a believer too. Oh, yeah, yeah. What do you believe? Oh, you, oh but, you know, um, you, you haven't heard about Jesus? Jesus, I never heard. So. And then the conversation begins, and that builds into something that connects with the people. And as those women were hearing, they were transformed, particularly Lydia. Even when you are in the midst of, a, of your crisis, as Paul is in prison, you have that opportunity to speak to people about the gospel. No doubt, it's not just about the gospel being preached even to the jailer, but even the hymns that were being sung while they were in darkness. Remember, the jailer brings the light. They're sitting in the midst of darkness. And all the other prisoners can hear was the singing of Paul. Now, what's remarkable that you don't really hear about is the fact that all the doors got flung open, but no one else was running out. Those are little details that you don't kind of get. Why? I don't know. What hymns were they singing? What captivated them? What did, why did these people not see the opportunity? Why was Paul able to stop the jailer from killing himself? Because obviously, it's either be killed now or be killed in the morning when you're when, when the, the government comes and the government officials come and find that the jail is empty. Maybe there was something in those hymns that captivated those people, that kept them locked in that moment. Who knows? But our witness in our times of need, in our... So even when you are in the midst of a crisis, you have an opportunity to speak to people about the gospel. And a unique opportunity because people see you in your crisis and are watching what you are going to do. It is no mere coincidence that God is able to speak more dynamically through your life when you are at your most vulnerable. In other words, our witness is increased. Again, as I said, why Proverbs says if you fail on the day of your, of, 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 your, of your trials and your judgment, you are weak because in a sense you have an opportunity to shine. And we don't give in to victimhood. I'm going to be a victim of my circumstances. No, I'm going to sing to God. As we looked at a few weeks ago about, you know, it is well with my soul and the origins of that story. One could speak of Fanny Crosby being bedridden, right, in many of the key hymns today that we would have no idea who and what circumstances brought about those hymns. But ultimately, there were people who refused to be victims of their circumstances. 2 Corinthians 12, 8 to 10. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weakness, weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. So that's the first point. Any opportunity you have for the gospel, grasp it. Especially when you're going through the hardships and people are gathering to you naturally to, to try and encourage you. Use that as an opportunity to encourage them. Two, tell his story. Let's go to Acts 13 and verse 16. So this is a sermon by Paul, and I think it's important, an important one. <laughs> so Paul is now in a synagogue. Um, in Pisidia, and he's been, offered, he's been offered the opportunity to give an exhortation. 
at the end of the synagogue reading. And so Paul is invited. And so verse 16 says this. So Paul stood up and motioned with his hands, said, Men of Israel and you who fear God, listen, the God of his, this people, Israel, chose our fathers and made the people great during their stay in the land of Egypt. And with uplifted arm, he led them out of it. And for about 40 years, he put them, put up with them in the wilderness. And after destroying seven nations in the land of Canaan, he gave them their land as an inheritance. All this took about 450 years. And after that, he gave them judges until Samuel the prophet. And then they asked for a king, and God gave them Saul, the son of Kish, a man of the tribe of Benjamin, for 40 years. And when he had removed him, he raised up David to be their king, of whom he testified and said, I have found in David, the son of Jesse, a man after my own my, my heart, who will do all my will. Of this man's offspring, God has brought to Israel a savior, Jesus, as he promised, before his coming, John had proclaimed the baptism of repentance to all the people of Israel. And as John was finishing his course, he said, what do you suppose that I am? I am not he. No, but behold, after me, one is coming, the sandals of whose feet I'm not worthy to untie. Brothers, sons of the family of Abraham, and those among you who fear God to us, to, to us has been sent the message of this salvation for those who live in Jerusalem and their rulers because they did not recognize him nor understand the utterances of the prophets which are read every Sabbath, fulfilled, fulfilled them by condemning him. And though they found him, in him no guilt worthy of death, they asked Pilate to have him executed. And when they had carried out all that was written of him, they took him down from the tree and laid him in a tomb. But God raised him from the dead. For why? For and for many days he appeared to those who had come up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, who are now his witnesses to the people. And we bring you good news that what God promised to the fathers, this he has fulfilled to us, their children, by raising Jesus, as also is written in the second Psalms, you are my son, today I have begotten you. And as for the, for the fact that he raised him from the dead, no more to return to corruption, he has spoken in this way. I will give you the holy and sure blessings of David. Therefore, he says to you also in another Psalms, you will, not, you will not let your holy one see corruption. For David, after he had served the purpose of God in his own generation, fell asleep and was laid with his fathers and saw corruption. But he, but he whom God raised, he did not see corruption. Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man, forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you, and by him, everyone who believes is free, and from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. Beware, therefore, lest what is said in the prophets should come about. Look, you scoffers, be astounded and perish, for I am doing a work in your days, a work that you will not believe, even if one tells it to you. As they went out, the people begged that these things might be told to them the next Sabbath. Do you see what Paul does there? Paul tells the story of Israel and how the gospel fits into it. And he doesn't, in a sense, make it a personal thing. And this is the, ten this is the temptation that we have today. Is that because we live in the West and because we live in a particular part of the West, that to some extent we need to appeal to the person in front of us. So often, and even when we think that we're not doing it, we are ultimately presenting the gospel as a makeover for the individual. That it's the, it's the key to happiness. It's the key to a better life. It's the key to kind of bring you together and be a better version of yourself. And nothing can be further from the truth. Not that that doesn't happen in other ways, but in a sense it's not the purpose. This is the story of Israel. And this is how you fit into it. And this is how Jesus comes and answers the very issues that Israel was facing. How does one become saved? How does one become God's people? And the whole history of, that he, he kind of recites there shows them that Israel as a project failed. But the answer to that failure, because David died and saw corruption, but there was one that was raised from the dead, and he is the one to whom I'm proclaiming to you, who was promised through David. In other words, he looks at the history of the people and then relates it to them and says, this is how you fit into his story. 
What are you going to do? And they begged that this could be preached to them again. When you... In a sense, what we do to try and become more relevant ultimately only pushes people away because there are better options than church where we try to offer it as a makeover. But when people are desperate, when people really are in need, they want to know their purpose within a, store, a world that has no longer has any meaning for them. If you really want to address the needs of a postmodern world, then start to show them that it has meaning because of who God is and who God has made you within it. That's the kind of message people will be begged to hear. Maybe not many, but those who are desperate, those who are in need, those who the Spirit has opened their hearts to receive, this is what they will receive. So when we tell his story, and we'll see as we look into the next section in chapter 17, how when he goes to the unbelieving world, how he makes that broader, because Paul is sensitive to his audience. Our life is found in him. You know, as John 14, 19 reminds us, because he lives, I also live. My life is found in him. So we need to preach his story. The temptations to talk about how God has, has changed my life and how I'm so much more happier now, there's a place for that. And I'm not even going to kind of look at that sarcastically. There's a place for that sometimes as we talk about what God has done and and. But ultimately, we need to tell his story. And that ought to be the brunt of what we do. Number three, we need to exegete the culture and look at the culture and what it's doing. So again, you know, as our final one, Acts 17, 16 to 34. So actually, I'm going to read from verse 12, Psalm 22. Let's make it a little bit easier. Yeah, read from verse 22. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed through and long and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God. What, therefore, you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you, the God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being, as even some of our own prophets have said. For we are indeed his offspring. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone or images formed of the, of, by the art and imagination of man. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commends all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he has, will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Now when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked, but others said, we will hear you again on this. So Paul went out from their midst, but some men joined him and believed among whom also was Dionysus and the Arapagite and a woman named Damaris and others with them.
as we noted in the previous section, to tell his story. But you see what Paul does when he, he's now not talking to, to merely Jews. He's now talking to an unbelieving world. He broadens it, and he now talks about the creation as a whole. And he says, this is how you fit in to what God is doing, is that God has made the world. And it's called all men to repent for not worshipping him as he ought to be worshipped. As we begin to exegete the cultures that we are in, we, we are going to find aspects of common grace like Paul. Exegete is just basically that means as we look and study what the world believes, that what's the story we tell, tell ourselves? What does the average Englishman believe or Englishwoman believe about themselves and who they are and how they got here? More often than not, people believe lies. What's the story the culture tells itself? Well, we're actually the product of chaos, um, and we have grown up, in, and this is what we believe superficially in our hearts. We're the product of chaos, there is no real God, and to some extent, we need to find our own meaning. Is that a story that satisfies you? And whatever makes us happy, that's what we're going to do. Every culture tells itself stories. That's why you find at the whole heart of every culture, stories. Because it tells you and informs you of who you are. But Paul is telling them a different story. They're telling them his story of who God is and who and how they relate to them. And like he said, he finds points of common grace because man is not so fallen that they will believe an absolute lie. No, we're not like that. He points to their Greek poets and he shows the aspects, you know, he shows those aspects that is pure. He says, well, we are his offspring. Well, yes. But he also shows that their culture is also marred by a fallen aspect. And he points out that they have given themselves over to many gods and causing them to be, as it were, over-religious. Or as you would look at those ancient worlds, as pantheists. The problem with pantheists is it's basically it's another, it's another form of atheism, of non-belief, because when you make everything God with a small g, then nothing is God. When everything's possibly, when, when you've made everything a possibility to be worshipped, then nothing is God. So what Paul is doing is he, he's critiquing the fact that they think they're religious, but they're not. They're religious for non-gods, and they're ultimately to be no god. So therefore, whatever they want to do, and whatever we want to make the center of our lives, that becomes God. And doesn't that sound like our culture today? Well, what's your truth? What do you want to do? What do you want to make the center of your life? And in a world where everyone has their own God, it's better to believe that there is no God, no ultimate truth. What Paul demonstrates here is that beneath the self-absorption and distortion of the gospel in the human being, there still remains a remnant of humanity's original state of being made in the image of God. In other words, Paul is not, as it were, just breaking them down. He's also appealing to that part of them which ultimately can respond to him. If the Lord opens their eyes. There's also another place, and again, I'll, I'll highlight this quickly, that there's also that point of being in the marketplace as we think about taking those opportunities and what does that marketplace look like? In the actual Greek world and Roman world, there was the marketplace where people spoke about ideas and that's where this whole event begins. He was in the marketplace sharing his own ideas, very much like Speaker's Corners today in, in Regent's Park. Uh, there was that opportunity in, in, in Roman and Greek markets where people will come and share ideas. In ancient Israel, it was the, it was the place of the, um, the town gate where all businesses were conducted, and we see that. But today it's quite hard because we don't have those places where we can easily identify. Where do people share ideas? And ultimately, well, there's many places. There's YouTube. There's books. There's our as it were, our Facebook accounts. 
the marketplace where people share ideas, and obviously that's becoming harder, but that's all the more reason to do it, to share our faith in the marketplace of ideas and share why we, do, we would disagree with other people and give them, as it were, our better story. So that's, again, that whole idea of what that future looked like. What are we going to do in these areas? Are we going ultimately to, to use those opportunities that God gives? As I'm casually going around my own business, will we use those to God's glory? Will I tell his story? Will I feel tempted to just tell them about who I am and how God has made my life so wonderful? Or will I try to actually understand what the gospel means to them in their own context? Will I exegete? Will I try and actually try to understand the culture I'm in and actually work hard to make it relevant to the people around me? How do we apply this? Well, we need to get beyond the abstract aspects of the church's future. That's where we began, isn't it? Oh, it's 20 years away. It's 20 years away. What becomes after us will be correlated to what we are doing now. In other words, the seeds of what we are doing now is creating the future of the church. So what we are doing will have a direct impact despite our intentions. The intentionality of Paul and Barnabas going out created churches and created friction and to some extent has created the Western world that we have today, though many will struggle to admit it. But the Western world that we have today and the values it has has all come because these men decided to go out and preach the gospel. The fact that people can look and see in the laws of, especially the ancient laws of Europeans and the Americans, that they are so close to that which we find in the Bible. All because people intentionally went out. Some of what we are doing will have a direct impact despite our intentions. Like the persecuted Jews leaving Jerusalem to seek refuge in a safe city, again, we must, must realize that God is indeed active through the crises that affect our lives. Likewise, we must also be aware that there is scope to learn through these circumstances and become intentional engaging in the world. In other words, as we go through these crises, we suddenly realize actually there's opportunities in them. And though we might have stumbled into them, we now, like maybe as these people in Antioch, start to say, let's now be intentional about how we do that. Well, what does that look like? Well, let me give you an example. Maybe you've had a long-term sickness that keeps you in hospital for a long time in which you can remember God using you. you know, so you're sitting in your bed and obviously numerous people come alongside you and you have the opportunity to, to say, oh, you've got so much visitors. Oh, so many people coming from the church. Yeah, yeah, you call. They're, they're other believers. They're people that are coming to, to see me and, you, and, and people are impressed and said, wow, you've got such a good community of, you know, oh, that's amazing. As they have nobody come to visit them. And you have that wonderful opportunity to witness to them. And share them with them, hopefully, his story. And how they fit into his story. Now you go, oh, that was intentional. I never had no intention of being ill and having to be in hospital for um, two, three weeks or four months or whatever it might be. But then now you suddenly say, actually, I'm going back to the hospital. I want to try and see if I can get a position as a chaplain. Maybe I'll just go there as a visitor. Maybe somebody just needs a friend and I, they've got a program where people can come, where those people that didn't have visitors come. And that's you being intentional. I'm not sick anymore. But I can see there's an opportunity there. That's the future of the church. In my own workplace, there are many residents that come back who were part, who were being held by the Home Office for numerous years, come back as visitors and speak to the, to, to, the, to the residents there and tell them of their own trials in being there. They're being intentional. I was where you were. And those guys are the most effective. Because they're able to tell them that there's a light at the end of the tunnel. That's intentionality. I remember one brother who talks about how he was messing around and doing everything and had one of those cushy fake marriages to try and keep him in the country. And then the Lord shock up his whole life. 
And the same wife that he was willing to just kind of fling to the side and go to was the one that bailed him out. And what started as a sham marriage became a real marriage. And faithfulness, and he came and he testified. He said, I was a fool, and when I was here, I suddenly realized it was the judgment of God. Intentionality. Where might that fit into your life? We also need to appreciate that being in the quiet times of church history. This is, not, this is not trendy times. This is not a great time to be a Christian. We know that. But as I started, that quiet part, we're in the quiet part of a song that God is building up. And if we are wise, we would say, I'm excited because I can see that God is about to do something. And I'm going to enjoy the quiet part of that song. We need to see ourselves as part of God's plan through history. When we can truly rejoice that we can create a foundation. We, can, we rejoice in the fact that we can create a foundation for what will come next. We are in the future. And we need to appreciate it. Let me end with this. Luke 17, 21 to 22. So Jesus is talking about this grand experiment of how the Lord is doing a wonderful thing and the kingdom of God is coming. And the Pharisees, in their very sarcastic way, say, well, where's this kingdom? Jesus says this. It says, being asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come, he answered them, the kingdom of God is not coming in ways that can be observed. Nor will they say, look here it is, or there. For behold, the kingdom of God is in the midst of you. Let's pray. Join us next time for more of God's truth to transform your reality.